for the service. Um, if you have a child, we can dismiss the sprouts at this time. Children, kindergarten, and younger can go with our sprout leaders. Let's give our sprout workers a round of applause as they serve our children. We are in the book of Proverbs, and what we've been doing for the last couple of weeks, and we have just a, a few more weeks left, we are thematically looking at the entire book and pulling out the major themes and focusing on them. So today we are focusing on the theme of greed, money, and materialism. Let's pray and we will dive in. Father, we ask once again that you help us this morning. Help us to understand your word, these uh, truths that are, uh, have the, uh, through the working of your Holy Spirit, uh, the potential of destroying our flesh and rebuilding us uh, in a very beautiful fashion. And so we ask that that happens this morning and that we can truly say that we would rather have Jesus than anything that the world affords today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Greed is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed clarifies. Greed cuts through and greed captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. That was from the 1987 film, Wall Street, quoted by Gordon Gecko. Greed is good. As I was uh, at my, my study location last night looking over my sermon, one of my friends there at this place where I hang out and study asked me what I was preaching on, and I said, greed, and he quoted for me Gordon Gecko, and he said, greed is good, so you preach that tomorrow. Is greed good? Is greed bad? We typically assume it is. Why? Why? If we are all just bags of chemicals, survival of the fittest, why? It's the evolutionary spirit, Gordon Gecko says. Greed is then, therefore, in his worldview, good. There are two words that I want to uh, define for you this morning and, and really just talk about. Uh, our whole sermon today is going to focus around two words. The first one is materialism. The second word is stewardship. Materialism. What does it mean? What is materialism? Now, the ism right there is, uh, this is, is uh, what tells us uh, the meaning. When you, see, when you see an ism, this is a little trick when you're looking at isms. When you see an ism, uh, all that simply means is that uh, whatever the concrete reality is of the word that comes before it, uh, that reality is a uh, worldview for you or at the center of your worldview. So let me give you an example. Humanism, all right? Um, we would all agree in the, the worth of a human being. Human beings are, are good. They are, they are, they are uh, worthy. They, uh, they are creating the image of God. We love human beings. All right? Humanism, though, is a worldview with the human at the center. All right? do, you see, do you see how we would disagree with humanism uh, while we would also believe that humans are uh, uh, very worthy? Uh, humanism would say that humans are at the center and then therefore uh, any idea of a, a spiritual center or a spiritual being at the center of our cosmos just doesn't make any sense. Another one would be uh, naturalism. We all believe in nature. We all believe that there are natural causes uh, for many things. Naturalism, though, all right, ism, remember, is a worldview which basically says that everything that exists has a natural cause behind it. So any kind of like spiritual explanation for anything that exists would be seen as absurd in the naturalistic worldview. All right? Make sense? So what is then materialism? Materialism. Materialism, in philosophy, it's the idea that only material things exist, in popular worldview, materialism is the idea that uh, the material is what matters most. The things that we can acquire, materi the, the, the material things that we can sort of accum accumulate for ourselves is what matters most, and so that, therefore, 
the things that we, material things that we can gather are actually more important than any kind of spiritual reality. So materialism places the gathering and acquiring and, and having of material things at the center of our, uh, our, our worldview, meaning the, the way that we see the world, the way that we make sense of the world. So the world makes sense when we have a lot of material stuff, materialism. Everybody tracking? All right, stewardship. Everybody say stewardship. stewardship. The idea of being a steward, all right? Now, I don't mean the name Stuart. Some of you are thinking, I don't want to be Stuart. I like my name. Not the idea. Steward, all right? Steward is it's not a word that we typically use uh, anymore, but uh, the concept we know well. Let me explain to you what a steward is or what stewardship is. If you were to say, uh, Joel, I, I got this new job and the bus line doesn't go there and I don't have a vehicle, I don't have any way to get to, the wor- uh, to, to my place of employment, um, can you give me some suggestions? And I were to say, hey, um, I have an extra car uh, that we're not using. Why don't you just use my car for a year uh, and save up money and then purchase your own car? Now, I don't have an extra car, okay? So if that's your situation <laughs> and you were going to test me on my generosity, <laughs> I, uh, I would if I could, but I don't have an extra car for you. But my point is this. Over this year now, let's say that you do have my car, you're using, you're using it as if it's your own, right? You're, I mean, this is, uh, you're parking it in front of your, your house, you're, um, you're driving, you're filling it up, you better be filling it up. You're, taking, you're using it as if it's your own car, um, but at the end of the year, you are returning it to the owner, all right? Now, a good steward would return the car you know, in good shape, all right? So if you borrow my car and you bring it back to me and it's all scratched up and dented up and the windshield's cracked and it's dirty like you've got lollipop sticks stuck to the, stuck to the driver's seat, um, you have not been a good steward of my car. However, if you bring me the car back and it's shiny and it's it's waxed, um, it's clean, it's been vacuumed, it smells nice. You replace the bumper, which my car bumper needs to be replaced. So if anybody <laughs> wants to borrow my car and be a good steward, you are welcome to do so. Um, that's a good steward. All right, so you've had my car in your possession, but you knew that you weren't really the owner, that you were at one point going to return to the owner, and so you were a good steward of the car. Does that make sense? So Dawn babysat our children last night, and she was a good steward of our children. When I came home, they were doing little things and cleaning their room. What a great steward of my children. Well, uh, materialism versus stewardship. Now, what does this have to do with greed? Well, our lifestyle indicates our worldview. And the lifestyle, or I'm sorry, let me back up. The worldview of materialism leads us to the lifestyle of greed. Whereas a worldview which is biblical, we could call it biblicism if you would, or a biblical worldview defined by how the Bible sees reality, a worldview based on the scriptures leads us not to a lifestyle of greed, but it leads us to a lifestyle of stewardship, seeing that all things that we have belong not to us but to God, and we are going to be a good steward. So what is the problem with greed? Is greed good? All right, Gordon Gecko. Five problems with materialism. Let me, let me, let me hit this. I want to give you some, the problem with materialism. I want to talk about the value of stewardship. And then finally, I'm just going to give you two marks of what a changed life looks like. So five problems with materialism. Turn to chapter 13 in Proverbs, verse 11. The first problem with materialism is this. The materialist needs wealth now. The materialist needs wealth now. In Proverbs chapter 13, verse 11, it says that wealth gained hastily will dwindle. But whoever gathers little by little will increase it. So the wise person is content with working a hard, honest job, 
uh, gaining little by little, putting $5 away, a little bit at a, t- at a time, and slowly accumulating enough money to maybe, let's say, purchase a car at the end of a year. Uh, the, the materialist says, little by little, not good enough, waiting for the car that I want to purchase, waiting to save up for this purchase, not good enough. I need my wealth now. I want to walk off with that car. I want to walk off the lot today with this car. And man, salespeople are good at this, aren't they? You can walk off. That's all I have to say. <laughs> you can walk off the lot today with this car and get rid of that junk. The materialist needs wealth now. However, wealth now, this is a proverb, it dwindles. It comes quick. It goes quick. You get, you get rich quick. You fall into a get-rich scheme. And you go broke quick as well. Because often the ways that you get rich quick are not solid ways. And you continue that pattern and you have lost it. A flash-in-the-pan success is often... A flash. Just a flash. So, getting wealth now, it it, uh, leads us to living a life of losing wealth quickly. Chapter 15, verse 27, though, uh, on the same point here, says this, Whoever is greedy for unjust gain troubles his own household. So not only is it wealth that's slipping through your fingers, but rather it's wealth that also brings trouble to your household. All right, so often... uh, the, the materialist uh, leans now subtly, ever so subtly, to dishonest practices, little shady ways to get money. And in one fashion or another, it brings trouble to the household. An extreme example of this would be Brad Pitt in the movie, uh, uh, what's it called? R- a River Runs Through It. Have you ever seen it? It's a good movie. You should watch it. But anyway, um, I'm going to give away the ending here, so don't worry about it. Uh, Brad Pitt's this younger brother, and he's this sort of like likable uh, character throughout the whole movie, but he gets into gambling, get rich quick, and it brings trouble on his whole household. He loses his life uh, as he gets in too deep, and his household is now heartbroken. All right, good example of this proverb. We, we seek wealth now. We can't wait. We're not patient. We don't think little by little is good enough, and we find not only that it's, we're losing it, but also that we are bringing trouble to our home. All right, number two, the second problem with materialism is this. The, mat- the materialist works only. Everybody say only. only. The material, material, I can't say it. Materialist works only for money. That is the reason this man or woman goes to work, is for a paycheck. Turn to chapter 23 in Proverbs, verse 4. Chapter 23, verse 4 says, Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. The materialist works only, he toils only to acquire wealth. Now, the biblical worldview doesn't minimize work. According to our biblical worldview, we're not, we're not a, a people who say, hey, just one day a week, one out of seven, we're going to go to church, we're going to give that to the Lord, but the other six days are, are uh, secular, if you would. Um, but rather, the biblical worldview says that all that we do on, uh, out of the entire seven days is to the glory of God, and it brings meaning, and it brings purpose, and it brings value to the most mundane tasks the nine to five becomes something that is an act of worship for us as we do a, a job to the glory of God. We don't minimize work as Christians, but the biblical worldview actually elevates the goodness of work. So as long as you're not a pimp, or as long as you're not like slinging dope, or work is good. Any job is good, whether that's uh, working in a factory or in a lab or pushing uh, a, a mop or whether that is uh, you, you name it. I mean, across the board, honest work is good and godly, all right? But the materialist doesn't see it that way. The materialist works only for the paycheck, and so if the paycheck isn't what the materialist thinks the paycheck should be, the materialist is not going to do the work that he thinks he could really be doing if the paycheck were better. The materialist works only for with one thing in mind, and that's the paycheck. No intrinsic value, no meaning, just money. All right, number three, 
Third problem, the materialist makes a terrible role model. Chapter 23, right there in verse 6, it says, do not eat the bread of a man who is stingy. Or just get the, uh, picture a stingy person, all right? You think of what they have in their fridge, you think of what they have in their, what their house looks like. Picture the stingy person. Don't eat their bread. <laughs> all right? Do not desire his delicacies. Which means that the stingy person is a terrible role model, a terrible person to link up with, and someone that we, I mean, why crave what they have? I mean, this is essentially saying when you're on Instagram and, and you come across this picture of you know, somebody that you follow, the materialist, and what you're seeing, I mean, they are showing off what they have, and you don't crave what they have. Don't, uh, don't desire their delicacies. As a matter of fact, don't even eat their bread. Now, eating bread in the ancient world, eating with someone was a symbol of unity. A symbol of coming together as, as one, one accord. We link up with the materialist and before long, you know, you become like your friends. You start to look like your friends. You start to think like your friends. You start to adopt your friend's worldview. And we adopt a worldview that is, that is uh, damaging and destructive and, uh, and, and stingy. The materialist makes a terrible role model. Number four, the materialist believes money will make him respectable. The materialist believes money, having stuff, will make him respectable. Chapter 22, verse 1. It says, A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. The favor is better than silver or gold. If you had to choose between a good name, respectability, this is someone who you can follow, this is a good role model, this is a... This is a a very respectable person, or riches, which would you choose? And see, the materialist believes that if I choose riches, I will get this. If I choose rich, if I can become wealthy, if I can have stuff, then people will look at me in a way that's respectable. People will say, hey, I want what he has. You hope that people are not reading uh, uh, chapter 23, verse 6. Don't desire what he has. All right, So we assume that everybody is going to sinfully uh, be envious of the stuff that we have. And so therefore, we will somehow acquire respectability through having a well-paying job through having nice things, through having money in the bank. Well, this is the lie that the materialist buys that money will make him respectable. When, Je when Satan tempted Jesus, what did Satan tempt him with? He showed him all of the world. Look, look as far as the eye can see, you bow to me and you can have all of these riches and you can have, through having all that you can see, you will become respectable and people will bow down to you and people will worship you. Now, Satan, such a fool to tempt the Creator with His creation. Alright? But Jesus being tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Jesus saw through the lie. Oh, as a matter of fact, the Son of Man, He had no place to lay His head the most respectable man to ever live. The, the materialist believes, however, that, that just having money, having stuff, will make him respectable. Tertullian, he was a, uh, a, a theologian in the second century. He said, nothing that is God's is obtainable through money. What he meant by that was you can never buy joy. You can't buy peace. You can't buy godliness. Nothing that is God's is ever obtainable through money. Well, fifth, the fifth problem with the materialists is this. The materialist has invent, invested in temporal gain only. Temporal gain alone. Chapter 27, let me just read you a few. Chapter 27, verse 24 
Riches do not last forever. Chapter 11, verse 4. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from wrath. Riches don't last forever. And as a matter of fact, on the, the day of wrath, which is another term for the day of judgment, as, as heaven crashes to earth and God judges, judges uh, humanity, what is your wealth going to do for you then? Your wealth does nothing for you on that day. You see, we are all followers of our parents, Adam and Eve, who uh, saw that this fruit looked good, the material thing, the creation, and they believed that, they, that this would bring them more happiness than faithfulness to the Creator. And so they, in their greed, took the material thing. And we've been materialists ever since. We've been greedy ever since. Now listen, one day, all right, Christ is coming back. The invisible will be made visible. Uh, the, the, the kingdom of God will come to earth, and we can now then in that day touch it and see it and feel it. It says, it says that the streets in that day will be made of gold. All right? This doesn't mean that we're all like blinged out, but what it means is that, is that the, the, mo- the, the most uh, precious uh, material that we have today will just be something that we walk on there. Because the glory of God will be so great, it's more wealth than we can imagine. All right, not this kind of wealth, but, a, but a, a, the glory of God, unfathomable beauty, which makes gold look like absolutely nothing. We'll just pave our streets with it. You see, we crave that day, but this is what we tend to do. In craving that day, we want wealth now. We want this kind of physical uh, pleasure now, all right? But friends, we are in a season of waiting. The kingdom of God today is invisible, not visible. We cannot see it. We cannot find it. We can't say there it is or it's over there. But rather, we are in this season uh, of, of, of uh, waiting as pilgrims on a journey, as foreigners passing through a strange land. What does our materialism have to say about our waiting? What does our materialism have to say about our faith in the kingdom that is to come? Riches do not last forever. What do our riches today have to do with that day of judgment? Our eternal reality. What will it profit a man then to gain the whole world and to forfeit his soul? You may, have, uh, you may remember a story that I told of uh, King Tut's grave, his tomb rather, when they found his tomb. When they found Tut's tomb, well, let me back up. The ancient Egyptians believed that uh, you could bury the, the wealth of a king with, with the, the king and that the wealth would somehow go with him into eternity. And so they did. And so Tut was an extremely wealthy ruler, young. They, uh, he died. They buried him with all of his stuff. Um, gold, uh, gems, jewelry, uh, pillars, I mean, all sorts, every, you know, bowls, gold bowls, everything that you can imagine that may, may have been in his palace was placed into his tomb with him. When they found Tut's tomb, his body had been disintegrated. Guess what they found? All of his stuff. It was still there. I wonder what Tut thinks about this. It was still there. And it's a great treasure today. Imagine someone's envious of it. If I had that stuff, then I would be happy. Oh, to have all of the riches of the world and then to stand before God naked with nothing. To be judged. Chapter 11, verse 28, whoever trusts in riches will fall. Whoever trusts in their riches will fall, but the righteous will thrive like the green leaf. What does it mean that the righteous will thrive? Well, the prosperity teachers would tell you that by his stripes you are physically healed. The prosperity teachers would say by Jesus' stripes he physically hooks you up. He gives you a lot of temporal riches. All right, so good news of Jesus Christ. He's coming to this world, and the good news is, is that you are going to temporarily get hooked up. All right? 
This is a perverse theology. If Jesus, if the good news of Jesus was that he uh, heals you physically alone, or he, he takes away your cancer, he grows a limb for you, okay? A, a temporal blessing. If that's the good news of Jesus, then he is a poor Savior. If the gospel is, is a uh, temporal riches that are given to you, uh, and then you stand before God one day and you have all of these temporal riches that you left behind, that is a poor gospel. No, the gospel of Christ is a gospel that says by His stripes you are eternally healed. You're healed of your sin. Not of your physical bodies, but of your spiritual decay. And that you are blessed eternally, not just temporally. The righteous, he says, will thrive like a green leaf. But wait, who are the righteous? Who are the righteous? Now this leads us to the cross. We can't talk about those who are righteous without talking about how we become righteous. How we are declared righteous. Who are the righteous? You see, at the end of the day, this is not the rich versus the poor. This really isn't about uh, having money versus not having money. Some of the greediest people that I know are rich people. Some of the greediest people that I know are poor people. We all struggle with materialism. But we all come to the cross naked. We all come to the cross as sinners, spiritually broke. Chapter 22, verse 2 says, The rich and the poor meet together. And the Lord is the maker of them all. The cross is the great leveler. The cross, at the cross, it doesn't matter what you have in your bank account or what you don't have in your bank account. Your riches do not help you when you stand before God. But we come to the cross recognizing that we are, forget our physical bank accounts, our spiritual bank accounts are, 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 are bankrupt. There's nothing in them. There's nothing there to show. We have no spiritual currency with which to spend and earn our righteousness. And this is where we cry out to God, God help me, God save me. What do I And every time we cry that out, we see our savior. And Christ is enough for us. When we cry out, Lord save me, the righteousness of Christ overflows our bank accounts. And his forgiveness washes us of our sins. Those who are righteous in Christ will thrive. Not merely temporal thriving, but an eternal thriving on that day. If Jesus bought us with His blood, then who owns us? Jesus. And if Jesus owns you, then who owns your stuff? Jesus. So now let's talk about stewardship. The value of stewardship, number one. The steward knows that wisdom is better than riches. Chapter 8, verse 11. Wisdom is more precious than rubies, and nothing you desire can compare with her When I was younger, I wanted to be rich. I really did. That's all I wanted was to be wealthy. And I was in church, and we sing, sang that song, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold than to be a king of a vast domain. And God changed my mind. I thought to myself, oh, I would rather have Jesus than all that the world affords today. The steward has the worldview which says the wisdom of God is far better than riches, than anything that we can have. The wisdom of God, through the wisdom of God, God created the world. That word became flesh and dwelt among us. His name is Jesus. I would rather have Jesus than anything that the creation can give me. While our wealth can put food on the table, 
It is only Jesus that can put peace in the hearts of those around the table. It is only wisdom that can put laughter around the table. The steward also knows, number two, that little now and much later is far greater than much now and nothing later. Chapter 16, verse 8. It says this, better is little with righteousness. All right, so better is little, like to have nothing in this world. All right, you're, you're about to overdraft. You're, you're down to the last penny. Better is little in this world, yet the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to you. The right, you have been in Christ declared righteous before a holy God and you've been given the hope of all that is your older brother, Jesus Christ. His, his entire inheritance is now yours through Him. Better is little in this world with righteousness than much with nothing in the next. The old phrase is true. If you're not in Christ, this world is the closest to heaven that you will ever be. If you are in Christ... This world is the closest to hell you will ever be. Little now, much later is far greater than much now and nothing later. Number three, value of this stewardship is this. The steward knows the quality, that quality of life does not come from material possessions. Quality of life does not come from material possessions. Chapter 15, verse 16 and 17. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Better is a dinner of herbs. All right, so we're sitting down tonight and we're eating oregano for dinner. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is. You see this? I mean, forget the, forget the fattened ox and hatred with it. Forget the fattened ox on your table. Let's take the... Let's take, take the dinner of boiled herbs and we're eating that for That's better. That brings more quality of life with love and with the joy of Christ in the room than a feast with hatred in the room. When we believe that our quality of life comes from having material things, when is enough enough? When do we ever arrive? We are just on this rat race of 10,000 more. 10,000 more. If I could make 10,000 more this year. If I could get my own place. If I could have a, a, a nicer car. I mean, if I could have this, then I will have quality of life. And then we achieve that. And you've probably experienced to some degree. You achieve what you thought would bring you quality of life. And guess what? You feel the same. You feel the same as you did when you had nothing. It's because material things do not bring quality of life, and the steward knows this. Oh, only the, the joy of Christ, basking in His righteousness, delighting in the good news of Jesus, bringing glory to Him, only these things bring us true quality of life. Outside of Christ, there is no real quality. Now, what are some marks? We're going to close with this. Let me just give you two marks of a changed life. So someone who's moving from uh, uh, materialism to stewardship. Two marks of a changed life. Number one, there is an increasing care for the poor and for the spread of the gospel. There is an increasing care for the poor and for the spread of the gospel. Proverbs 19 Proverbs 19, 17 says, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord. He will repay. Meaning that there is a benefit to giving. There is a, a, a real benefit in the sense of we have a care for the poor. Our, our, desire, our heart for the poor grows and we know that as we give to the poor that God will take care of me. Chapter 21, verse 13 says, Whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be 
answered. When you consider that there are places in this world where the majority of the children do not live until their ninth birthday. When you, when, when you consider the, the poverty, I mean, that makes every single person in our city look like King Tut. The poverty that is in some places in this world as well as in our own city of Baltimore. I mean, what does that do in your heart? Does that stir up anything? Do you have an increasing care for the poor? Now, this then leads us to this question, why does God give so much to some and so little to others? And I don't have a great answer. There are some things that are left to the mystery of God's providence. But I do know this, that one of those reasons is this. God wants us to learn that we must help our brothers and sisters. We must help those who have physical needs. We must help. Now what's even more is this, is that in many of these places around the world, the gospel is not present. Alright, so not only is there not enough food to give someone the strength to walk miles, but if you could walk miles, you're not going to find any community preaching the gospel. The, the closest thing to hell that you, if you are in Christ, will receive is this world. If they are not in Christ, their life right now is the closest to heaven that they will ever know. The gospel is not present. The gospel is not preached. Not only are they perishing, but they are perishing. Oh God, rescue the perishing. And care for the dying. May God raise us up to give more to send more and to go to these places so that the gospel may be preached. Listen, a steward, one of the marks of stewardship is we have an increasing desire for the poor and, 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 and for the gospel to be spread to the uttermost parts of the world. The ancient church in the first couple centuries was hated by the pagans. One of the reasons that the pagans didn't like the church was this. They said not only do they take care of their own, but they take care of our poor as well. They despise the church for this. You're making us look bad. Our, 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 our heritage is a heritage of generosity. Love for the poor, for the spread of the gospel. As a matter of fact, our church covenant that every member recites together at, our, at every member's meeting, it says this, we will contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel through all nations. This is our call. The second mark of the steward is the steward has not only a care for the poor and the spread of the gospel, but the steward has an increasing desire, all right, not guilt, but a desire to give money away. Chapter 11, verse 24 says that one gives freely and, and grows richer, another withholds and suffers want. Now remember, this is a proverb, this isn't a promise, this isn't saying that if you give, you will grow richer, all right? But what this is saying is, is generally speaking, in, the, in God's economy, the way the world works and the way that God orchestrates things in this world, the stingy person, the person who's hanging on to every dollar because they're afraid and they don't know if they're going to need this dollar, the stingy person often will find God take that dollar away so that they might begin to rely on Him and not the material blessings. But the one who gives freely is often given more so that that person can give more freely. Now, it's so easy for us to say, well, I'll be generous with my time. 
Or I'll be generous with maybe my car or a room in, in my house. I'll be generous with other things. My, when I was in college, my basketball coach, uh, we were driving together and, and he said, you know, he said, I don't give money away um, because I, 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 I do so much with my time and even uh, uh, some things that I do with the, the basketball team. He was pointing out some volunteer things that he's been doing. And he's like, that's, that's sort of my giving. And I thought to myself, I don't know, I think you should probably give some money. I think money's probably a god for you. <laughs> it is so easy to say, oh, I give of my resources. I give in all these different ways. Friends, we should, all right? But what is the one thing we really don't want to give away? Oh, maybe that's where we should start. You see? The one thing that we are tempted to turn into a god is where we should start. The steward has an increasing desire to give money away. Now, the spiritual discipline that we talk about when we talk about giving is the word tithing. Tithing is a spiritual discipline which God has given us to support the work of His ministry, but also to tell our money on a regular basis, you don't own me. You don't owe me. I, I, I acquire 10 bucks from a job and I give $1 away. You don't own me. You're not my God. Because see, we don't give away our God, do we? What, what, what greater way to tell our money you are not God than to give it away? Now, some might ask, what is tithing? Well, tithing is the spiritual discipline of setting aside and giving 10% of our income. So we receive Ten, uh, or we receive a paycheck, we take 10% of that, and we give it away. Now, someone else might say, well, that's legalistic. That sounds, isn't that legalistic? All right, let's talk about that very briefly. In the Old Testament, there were three, not one, three tithes. All right, so a lot of times we say, hey, in the Old Testament, they tithed in the Old Testament. Well, actually, they, they had three tithes. All right, one tithe only happened once every three years. And uh, so that meant that, on average, they were giving away 23% of their income every year. Um, and you say, well, in the New Testament, aren't we supposed to give voluntarily and freely and joyfully? The answer is, is yes, amen, and yes. <laughs> Just as we should attend church, voluntarily, freely, and joyfully, Meaning nobody's going to lock you up if you don't come to church. Nobody's going to lock you up if you don't give. But because we are to give, or let's go with attend church, voluntarily, freely, and joyfully, does that mean, well, hey, good excuse to not go? If we are to, to, to give generously, to tithe, and we're to do it voluntarily and freely and joyfully, Oh, is that an excuse to say, well, I feel a little, <laughs> I'm not going to be very joyful about this. All right, so therefore, God wouldn't want me to. All right? So instead of tithing, I'm tipping God today. It's just a little, which that's kind of what we do, actually, isn't it? Based on God's uh, service, we, we tip Him. God doesn't want us to tip Him based on His service as we would a waiter. Some would say that I'll, I'll tithe when I make more money. The, the beauty of tithing is, is it actually levels uh, the playing field. Meaning, those who don't make much money don't give a lot. Those who make a lot of money give <laughs> a lot of money. God wants those who are wealthy to give more than those who are poor. But we don't wait until we're wealthy to begin the discipline of tithing. If you're not tithing off of the $100 paycheck and say giving, what, $10? What makes you believe that you will tithe off of the million-dollar paycheck and give away $100,000? Now, let me just be clear. Uh, if you are 
visiting the church this morning or you're not a Christian, we don't want your money, all right? We're not, we're not going to try to sneak a dollar out of you before you leave. All right, we're not going to pressure you. We don't want your money. Tithing is for those who believe that Jesus rose from the dead and is their Lord and Savior. Tithing is for those who believe that Jesus will take care of them, not just in this world, but in the next. Randy Alcorn said this. He said, tithing is the training wheels on the bicycle of giving, which means that at the end of the day, this spiritual discipline of tithing isn't even the goal. It's just the training wheels. It's a, it's a spiritual discipline. It's a means of grace that God uses to teach us to trust Him. To teach us to care for the poor. To teach us to love and give to church ministry. To teach us to care for and give to the proclamation and the spread of the Gospel around the globe. And as I've already said, and to learn to Trust Him. Oh, God can do more with 80% of your income, 90% of your income, 60% of your income than you could do with the whole thing. We trust God. What a grace it is. The root of greed is fear. It's, 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 if, if you're stingy, it's because you're scared. You're scared because you don't trust the Savior. You don't have a Savior. But Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. For all who trust in Christ, we find a wonderful Savior and He has given Himself to us and He will not leave us. Giving our income then is a bold and countercultural display of our trust in the Savior but secondly, it's a, it's a display of God's glory and His saving love for us. You see, our Father, He set His affections upon you. Out of love for the lost, our Father willingly gave His Son. The Son willingly came into this world. The Son gave His own life and went on to the cross. And for those three hours, we cannot imagine the horror of the guilt of all of our sin being placed upon Him and taking for us the penalty for our sin. And He gave Himself willingly for us. There is a friend that sticks closer than a brother and the hallmark of his friendship is giving. That he gave himself for you. The Father and the Son then sent the Holy Spirit into this world. And the Holy Spirit willingly gives of himself to open the eyes of the lost. To call us to salvation. To activate our dead faith. And to draw us to the face of of Jesus, and to seal us until that day of redemption when God's kingdom crashes to earth and the feast is set out and we're now standing on streets that have just been paved with the gold and we used to think that was so valuable. And all the stewards will stand before the owner in that day. Friends, on that day, will you feel that you gave too much away in this life? On that day, will you feel that you just lived too simply in this life? On that day, when all who are in Christ hear the words of Christ, well done, my good and faithful servant, will the riches of this world matter? Let's pray. Father, we ask that you Help us to trust in you, lean in you, uh, that, that as a, uh, a sign of our trust that we will become more generous, that we will become uh, stewards of all that you have given us, including money. And that we would give to help the poor, to the support of your ministry, and for the spread of the gospel through all the nations. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. 
And everybody said, amen. Let's stand together as we prepare our hearts for communion. This is an opportunity for us to be reminded of His body that was broken for us and for our salvation, His blood that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. Let me read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. When He gave thanks, He broke it and He said, This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The bread that we take reminds us of the righteousness of Christ and that righteous body broken so that we might have his righteousness. In the same way he took the cup after, after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he, count, he comes. As we come to the table this morning, I want you to come not as a perfect person, not as someone who has earned your righteousness, but as a broken sinner who's believing and trusting in your Savior, Jesus Christ. Come to renew that covenant with Christ this morning through this taking the bread, dipping it into the cup. He goes on, he says, whoever therefore eats this bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let's examine our hearts before we come. If there is uh, a, a complete denial of Christ in some room of your life, uh, an area of your life that you are not willing to place under the submission uh, to Christ, under his lordship, for your own sake, don't come to the table. Just remain where you are and ask God to convict you. If you're not a Christian, we're glad that you're here. We ask that you uh, uh, keep coming and exploring the gospel. Feel free to remain where you are uh, as we take communion, but we want you to know this, that as we come, what we are saying is that Jesus is our salvation. And we hope that one day you will say that with us as well. Let me pray and then we will come to the table. Father, we thank you for this time that we can gather together and come to receive this reminder and this renewal of the covenant with Jesus Christ, our Savior. It's in his grace that we come and in his name that we pray. Amen.